This morning I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent, though, um, as you'll see, we'll come back to where we left off yesterday at many points. Yesterday we, in a way, followed through the implications of the Buddha's central idea of, of contingency or dependent origination and saw how that was then extrapolated into the idea of the four truths and we looked at the four truths as describing uh, a process of um, actions that knowing or fully knowing dukkha leads organically to the dropping away of certain graspings and, and cravings and that dropping away culminates in a stopping and it's that stopping that opening that's technically what's called nibbana that opens up the possibility of being in the world from another perspective altogether namely one not dictated by the imperatives of greed of hatred of delusion around self and that leads us into the Eightfold Path and so I'm giving priority here not to the um, experience of Nibbana but actually to what the experience of Nibbana opens up as a possibility of being in the world as a perceiving, thinking, speaking, acting, working person. And how that process too then leads us back through mindfulness, through concentration, to another consideration, a deeper consideration of our, of our situation in life, dukkha and craving and so forth and so on. And this capacity that human beings have for such a way of life is um, captured in this much-used uh, phrase or expression, uh, Buddha nature. It's become so widely used, um, even in this book I was mentioning yesterday by Lewis Wolpert on the evolutionary origins of belief, when he does his little summary of Buddhism, because of, you know, he deals with religion in one chapter, so Buddhism gets a mention in a paragraph, lo and behold, the idea of Buddha nature pops up. Um, and that, I think, is indicative, because Walpert's not, clearly not a Buddhist scholar or even interested in Buddhism, but nonetheless, that idea has filtered through to him, the idea of Buddha nature. And I think it's become a very attractive idea in the West. Um, as with many such ideas, they become prevalent because they seem to click with us in a certain way. They, they seem to have a natural, there's a natural kind of an, an attractor built in. Ah, oh, Buddha nature, yes, I like that. I'm not so sure about this dukkha business, but Buddha nature, <laughs> Buddha nature, yeah, I can go for that one. And, but I think what happens as soon as we take a term like this, we tend to privilege it and we tend to um, uh, restore it to a kind of normative religious language. 
And I think for many, in many cases, the idea of Buddha nature has become for many, uh, many Westerners, many, not only Westerners, but Buddhists throughout the world, as a kind of surrogate soul. We've got rid of the Atman, this notion that there is a kind of permanent, fixed, um, isolate soul tucked away deep inside us somewhere. But now, fortunately, we've got Buddha nature, and that will do more or less just as well. And in some of the dominant metaphors that we find around this word, that very idea is very um, clearly uh, stated. And I'm thinking particularly of a text called the Ratnagotra Vibhanga, which was a 4th century AD commentary by Asanga, but it's very widespread in, in both the Chinese traditions and the Tibetan traditions. And you've probably heard these metaphors. The Buddha nature is like the seam of gold that runs through rock. The Buddha nature is like the honey inside the honeycomb in the beehive. The Buddha nature is like a golden Buddha image which has been wrapped in soiled cloth. Now, all of these notions um, suggest, again, a splitting of the world, which, as I've mentioned already, is somehow characteristic of normative religious thinking. There is a pure, uncontaminated, transcendent, real world, and there is the deluded, confused, corrupted reality in which we find ourselves most of the time. And whether we call that God, or whether we call it Nirvana, or whether we call it um, the unborn, or whatever, the split is there. And Buddha nature, in this term, uh, clearly fits that model. The gold inside the rock. In other words, there's something at the heart of our experience that is qualitatively of a different kind of stuff. It can be extracted from the rock. It's not contaminated essentially by the rock. Or the honey in the hive, or the Buddha image wrapped in the soiled cloth. There's a dualism in this idea, very strongly. And that's very attractive. We like to think that there is a bit of us that is somehow exempt from the messiness of our physical, social, and other more palpable aspects of existence, something transcendent, something apart. And Buddha nature certainly has come to fulfill that role for many Buddhists. Not to be entirely negative, I do think, nonetheless, that these kinds of images can be inspirational. I think if, if, if we're feeling... Uh, kind of lost and confused and depressed, then to affirm that there is something within us like the gold inside the rock can be very liberating. It can be a very positive image to somehow uh, s uh, motivate ourselves to, uh, to rise above these things. Another classic image, of course, is the image of the lotus flower that arises out of the mud and yet is unsullied by the mud. In fact, this is an image that goes back into Indian tradition as a whole. And again, it's inspirational. It has its value, certainly, but philosophically, it's problematic because it once again um, is based upon a split 
a dualism, the lotus as opposed to the mud, and so on. Now, someone left me a note and said, doesn't the idea of Buddha nature go against some of the things I've been saying? And yes, it does. And, and one of the, um, the things I find very problematic about it is the very notion of the word nature. Now, remember, nature is not being used in this sense as the birds and the bees and all the lovely things that are going on around us, mother nature. But nature in the sense of uh, an uh, essence or substance. In other words, the, the, the nature of something, the true nature of something. And the Buddha nature idea is that our true nature is that of the Buddha. That somewhere inside our body-mind complex there's a Buddha trying to get out. That our essential identity, what we really are, is this uh, seed of Buddhahood or this imminent awareness that's already there. And again, I think there is some value to that idea. But the danger, once again, is this slippage back into the very uh, uh, sense of things that the Buddha was deeply critical of. Namely, that there does reside somehow within us a kind of uncorrupted, a true nature, something separate and different from everything else. And it's curious also because if we consider the uh, work of Nagarjuna, who I've mentioned a number of times, who is very much the great um, uh, philosopher of the idea of emptiness, then for Nagarjuna what emptiness means is the emptiness or the absence of swabhava, in other words, own nature. Nature. The, the, the term in Sanskrit is swabhava. And so nature in Indian tradition, in Buddhism, has always been a term of uh, great suspicion. The notion that there are essences and natures and so on makes Buddhism very much a non-essentialist approach. It doesn't acknowledge or accept the reality of intrinsic natures to things. This is seen as actually a blockage. It locks us into a fixed idea as to what we really are and actually prevents the kind of liberative, creative movement that the path and the movement into the path suggests. So it's kind of anti-Buddhist in a way, I feel, this very notion of nature, the nature of things. And we have to ask, therefore, you know, why has this term become so prevalent? And the reason is not because it's a term that we can actually find an equivalent for in the Pali or in the Sanskrit literature. There is nowhere to be found in all of the research that's been done any term that um, equates the English word Buddha nature. It's just not there. It would be Buddha Swabhava. doesn't exist. So how come, in English, we have this word Buddha nature, if there's no equivalent for it in the original texts? The reason is a rather curious one that is the result um, of translation from Sanskrit into Chinese. The word Buddha nature first finds its way into 
English, and probably through the writings of D.T. Suzuki and his contemporaries back in the last century. And Suzuki was working from Chinese and Japanese materials primarily, and would have quite correctly translated the Chinese word for Xing as Buddha nature. That's exactly what it means. Xing means essence or nature. Fo means Buddha, or in Japanese, Busho. So Suzuki and his colleagues didn't make a mistake in the translation. They were quite literally correct. The problem, however, lay in the fact that the Chinese translated the Sanskrit terms inaccurately as Xing, nature, where in fact there is no Sanskrit equivalent. And this is curious. So the reason the word has become prevalent in the West um, is because, partly, of a translation choice made about <laughs> over a thousand years ago um, in China. Again, that might just seem a curious little anecdote, but the implications of it, I think, have been considerable. So what are the terms that we find in uh, Pali and Sanskrit uh, that have been subsequently translated as Buddha nature? And that's what I want to look at. And as we consider these terms, we'll realize we're in a whole different field of metaphor. Now, there are two terms... Uh, that are most commonly used in uh, the early Indian languages for which we translate as Buddha nature. And they are gotra or gota in Pali, that's G-O-T-R-A in Sanskrit and G-O-T-T-A in Pali. And garba, G-R-A-B-H-A, primarily only in Sanskrit. But the, the, the earliest indications of a notion that we would... Um, uh, translate as, uh, as Buddha nature are found in the Pali text and in fact in the text that Martin one of the texts that Martin referred to last night uh, the first, uh, this is in the Anguttara Nikaya um, and the term Gotra or Gota that I've just mentioned um, literally means something like lineage or family um, or type almost um, Gota in Pali, and the, 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 this term is not used very much in the Pali tradition. In fact, I'm only aware of this one passage, the one that Martin referred to, um, as actually where the Buddha actually specifies what it means to be somehow part of this lineage. Remember the word lineage, family, has very much to do with the metaphor of reproduction, of being born, of being part of a community, part of a family. Um, that is really where the root of the idea lies, that those who are participant in the Buddha's project, who are part of the Sangha, are part of the community, are metaphorically born into a kind of lineage, into a kind of family. The word that is used in Tibetan for Buddha nature is almost, in, is, is all, 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 almost um, exclusively the word rik. And rik means, again, family or lineage, and it again is a translation for Sanskrit, gota or gotra. 
Now, that's a very different notion to the nature of something, which almost invariably suggests something static, something fixed, our true nature. Our true nature is something that, by definition, isn't going to budge. Whereas the notion of gota, of lineage, of family, suggests immediately the idea of growth, of development, of birth, of belonging. That's very much the idea. In fact, the Buddha is also, um, historically, in the Pali, um, often described as belonging to the Adicca Gota, the, the, the lineage of the sun, S-U-N. The Shakyans, as a tribe or confederacy in North India, regarded themselves as descendants of the sun god Okaka. And perhaps there's even a background suggestion of um, the Buddha belonging to this solar lineage, something that burns, something that radiates, something that generates light and warmth. Arguably the notions of enlightenment and so on are deep down in him calling back to this image of the sun, this image of radiance, this image of, um, of giving life in that sense. But the way he picks it up is in this notion of the Arya Gota, the lineage of the Aryans. Now, I mentioned already yesterday that um, the Aryans, of course, are a northern, probably European tribe, we don't quite know where they came from, that are believed to have come into northern India about a thousand or so years before the Buddha to have displaced the local indigenous population and have established the uh, Brahmanic uh, civilization, primarily in the Gangetic plains. But the Buddha takes this word Arya and he twists it around. He gives it a radically new meaning. For him, it doesn't mean belonging to a particular racial lineage, but it means belonging to a spiritual lineage, a lineage of human possibility that is intimately tied to his notion of these four truths, which are Arya Satya, the truths that ennoble one. So he describes the, the lineage that he, um, he puts forth into the world as the Arya Gota, the lineage of the noble ones. And uh, he then describes what in fact it means to belong to such a noble lineage. And there are four features of this um, uh, identity. It is first, a monk is content with any kind of robe. Secondly, a monk is content with any kind of food. Thirdly, a monk is content with any kind of lodging. And fourthly, a monk finds delight in bhavana, which I'll explain. So in other words, he sees the, the root of belonging to this community or this lineage in having achieved a state of material contentment to be satisfied with what you eat to, in other words to have sufficient food to have sufficient clothing to have sufficient shelter those are the primary requisites that enable a person to then be able to say okay I'm more or less comfortable but what is this life all about? In other words, this does seem to be a kind of 
uh, a foundation for a Buddhist social theory, that a Buddhist society would be one that would provide the members of that society with the fundamental requisites of material survival. The example of the monk or the nun is basically the example of a person who is content to live with the minimal uh, material requirements such that they can then dedicate their lives to what might be called their spiritual development. In other words, the pursuit of meaning, the pursuit um, of the question as to what life is actually about. And this then leads to the fourth of these um, uh, criteria of membership, if you wish, a monk finds delight in bhavana. Now, the translator here, Bhikkhu Bodhi, has said, a monk finds delight in the development, open brackets, of meditation, close brackets. This is entirely wrong. This is, you, can, you could read it that way. In fact, Buddhist tradition has tended to, but it totally obscures the centrality of this term bhavana. The word he's translated is development. Um, sounds like a housing development. <laughs> the word bhavana uh, literally means to bring into being. And it is the injunction the Buddha gave regarding the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. Remember, this is the emphasis I've been giving it. Suffering is to be fully known. Craving is to be let go of. Cessation is to be experienced, and the path that then opens up is to be bhavanad, which we might translate as to be cultivated, to be brought into being, to be created, is what it essentially means. The word bhavana has its root in the Sanskrit word bu, which is actually a cognate of the English word be. Be, bu, bhava, existence, bhavana, verb form, to bring into existence, to cultivate something, as you would a plant. A plant is initially just a seed that you, um, you put in the ground, you take care of it, and then you bring into being something that did not previously exist, um, a gladiola, whatever it might be. And likewise, the Buddha's injunction regarding the path is not follow the path, as though the path were already laid out for you somewhere and you just had to sort of meekly go step by step along it. He doesn't say that at all. He says you need to create the path. You need to bring it into being. Here it would be develop it. But curiously, this word bhavana, in, in all Buddhist societies has tended now to become almost exclusively identified with meditation. And again, when the Tibetans translated, they translated it as gone, which has come to mean, you know, basically what we understand as meditation, sitting cross-legged somewhere and doing some kind of internal spiritual exercise. That's certainly part of it, arguably even a central part of it. But nonetheless, it reduces a much more... Um, uh, a, a much richer idea to a much poorer idea. It, it singles out only certain elements of the path, namely mindfulness and concentration, f forgetting therein that 
what is to be bhavanad is the way we see the world, think about it, the way we communicate, the way we act, the way we earn our living. All of these are equally practices. They are, thing, they are qualities of life that need to be brought into being. And of course the word in English that I mean, brought into being is very clumsy. What we would say is to create. To create something means to bring it into being. To create um, you know, work of art or whatever, whatever it is, is to bring into being something that previously wasn't there. And I think this points very much to the, um, the, uh, the centrality of this practice as being rooted in a creative process. We're not just dumbly following instructions. We may do that, and again, hopefully not dumbly, but there is a need, I think, for commitment and training and discipline and so forth, as we're in fact doing on this retreat. But that's not the end point of the exercise at all. The end point of the exercise is to discover a freedom within ourselves, a stopping of these habitual uh, drives to possess and to acquire and to get rid of and to just dwell in one's own ego. When that falls away, then we open up the possibility of creating our lives anew. That we ourselves become, as it were, the, the raw material for the emergence of what metaphorically we call a path. So that is, um, so, so for the Buddha, therefore, the, 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 the and again, I hesitate even to use this word now, but we're stuck with it. Buddha nature starts with this idea of uh, achieving a degree of contentment, being content with what one has that provides the basics of one's survival, and on that basis, then delighting in, as he says here, the cultivation of a path, the creating of a path. That is your Buddha nature, if you will though the Buddha would not use a word quite like that. But the other word um, that is perhaps um, the one uh, most commonly found in the, in the Sanskrit literature, and we don't find it in the Pali, it's an idea that emerged uh, after the Buddha's lifetime, is the term Tathagatagarbha. Uh, now Tathagatagarbha is usually considered to be the Sanskrit equivalent of the English word Buddha nature. But if we look at the term closely, that's not what it means at all. Garba, or Tathagata means the Buddha. And um, we don't need to get into that. Why? It's a weird word. The Tathagata, actually I just came up, never mind. Tathagata means the Buddha. And Garba, this is the key word. Garba means womb. And... In other words, the idea of Buddha nature is rooted in this notion of the womb of the Tathagata, the womb. Now this is a, a language, a, a metaphor that is so at odds with the notion of an essential nature that one wonders why the Chinese would have used that term to translate it. I wonder if in fact they were not slightly squeamish. I don't know, that's a guess. But likewise, in Tibetan, when they translated to Tagatagarbha, they also didn't use the word womb. It's not as though the word womb doesn't exist in Tibetan or Chinese. 
course it does. But the Tibetans use the word nimbo, which means more like the, the heart essence. In other words, they chose another organ, but not the womb. It's quite curious, in a way, that a bunch of celibate monks locked away in monasteries would, um, would, would come up with this very fleshly and very female metaphor. And yet that's the one they chose, a garba. Garba, if we think about it in terms of, of metaphor, uh, garba is, of course, an empty space. A, a womb is an empty space. But it's an empty space that can be, be fertilized, an empty space that can be impregnated by, metaphorically here, an idea, a possibility, uh, some other way of living. And it's the kind of space that then is able to, uh, to nurture and to uh, allow uh, something to gestate to the point where it is ready to be born. And again, here we see very clearly the, uh, the linkage between the idea of, um, of womb and of birth and of family and of lineage it's all very much within the same metaphorical ballpark. We're talking here of a living process. In fact, the idea, they couldn't have chosen a metaphor less suggestive of life process. So Buddha nature, I think, fails to capture that idea at all. It doesn't suggest so much a process, but rather some kind of of state, some kind of uh, essential thing. Whereas the metaphor at root is a processual metaphor. And this is something that I've been trying to emphasize throughout this retreat, the idea of how what the Buddha's teaching is not about trying to somehow transcend our lives and disappear into nirvana, which is certainly a way Buddhism even represents itself at times, but rather about freeing what blocks us, what impedes us from living fully. The whole metaphor of Mara and the Buddha is very much a metaphor of, um, of, 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 of releasing or, 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 or freeing ourselves from those forces within us that are a kind of inner death. Attachment, grasping, hatred, fear, these are metaphorically um, elements of death. Mara meaning the killer. Buddha, therefore, as the counter-image to Mara, being an image of living fully and living totally. The idea of creating a path. The idea of each of our beings being like a womb that can gestate an idea or a practice like mindfulness or awareness or uh, clarity of mind, that this is, in a way, what we do as we sit here. We become a womb of enlightenment. And as we sit here, what we're doing is allowing certain uh, qualities of mind to gestate, to, re to become to, to reach a certain maturity so that something new can be born. And again, the way we've looked at the path is likewise about um, letting go of what impedes 
our potential, reaching a point where we see not only intellectually but experientially the possibility of coming alive in an entirely new way. And that is the, the sotapan, the entering the stream of the path itself. So Garba and Gotra are pointing very much to some kind of process. Now, I'd like to look at... Um, I've got about four other examples here of how this particular idea has been understood uh, traditionally. The first is to look at how Dogen understood the idea of Buddha nature, in scare quotes. Dogen was the founder of the Japanese uh, Soto uh, school of, of Zen Buddhism. Uh, he lived in the 13th century um, in Kamakura, Japan. And he's most famous for a work called the Shobogenzo, um, which is a collection of about 100 short essays, most of them deeply enigmatic. There's one essay, though, called Busho, which is Buddha nature. And when Dogen asks himself, what is Buddha nature? What is Busho? He then answers himself, Busho, Buddha nature, is what is this thing and how did it get here? Not at first sight immediately comprehensible, but um, it does, of course, refer back to a very famous um, saying that occurs in an exchange between the, the sixth patriarch, Huineng, and his disciple, Hui Zhang. Those of you who have been on our Zen retreat will know all about it. Um, let me just sort of say that story so you'll put it in context. Hui Zhang was a young monk who lived at the beginning of the 8th century. He was living in northern China at the time. He heard of this great Chan, or Zen teacher, down in uh, southern China. And so he walks all the way down to southern China, which is several hundred miles. And then he arrives at the monastery, is shown into the master's uh, quarters, and Huineng, uh, the teacher, comes out and, uh, to greet him and says, and uh, where have you come from? And Hui Zhang says, I've come from Mount Song. And then Huineng says, but what is this thing? How did it get here? To which, the text continues, Hui Zhang was speechless and then spent eight years in the monastery, presumably uh, trying to figure out what was meant by this question. So what Dogen is citing is in fact Hui Neng's answer to Hui Zhang's... Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Hui Neng's uh, second question to Hui Zhang. What is this thing? How did it get here? Or as we boil it down to the koan, uh, what is this? In other words, a question... For Dogen, Buddha nature is essentially a question. It's not an affirmation of anything. I mean, Dogen could have said, oh, Buddha nature, that is the Buddha within or your own potential for awakening or something stated in a, in, in a cataphatic manner, in other words, in an affirmative manner. But no, he says something um, quite curious to our ears on first uh, hearing. What is this thing? How did it get here? 
Now, this is not an intellectual question of any kind, but it is actually a putting into words of the very question that our life poses to us in each moment, what we might call the mystery of our existence, or the mystery of existence uh, to court, uh, quite simply. The question of life itself. What is this all about? What's going on? That's the Buddha nature. To be able to somehow experience your life as profoundly and utterly weird and questionable and odd and curious and bewildering and awesome, whichever word suits your own particular inner vocabulary, that is your Buddha nature. In other words, your capacity to wake up, one might say, your capacity to live your life not dictated by habit and convention and so forth and so on, starts when you first become a question for yourself. And in Zen meditation, this question, particularly Rinzai Zen meditation, although curiously, Dogen is actually of the other school. The Rinzai Zen practice is very much about sustaining this questioning, not slipping back into the comfort of affirmations or beliefs or doctrines. And this is the great power, I think, of Chan or Zen, is that it gives priority not to a set of internally consistent answers or doctrines or beliefs, but gives priority to the questions from which those beliefs might, on some occasions, have been the answers and perhaps the most appropriate answers. And I think this is always a problem in religion, and Buddhism is certainly not exempt from this, that we come to, let's say, a retreat, or we take an interest in going to our local Buddhist temple or whatever, we, or we're buying a Buddhist book, and we often come to that, we make that first step, I think often in a deeply truthful condition. We acknowledge that we're confused, there's something not quite right, something missing, something askew, awry with our lives. We are questioning, and we're not just necessarily intellectually curious here, there's something much more serious going on. Our, our existence has become bewildering for us. And that, um, as Chugyam Trumba once said, is very good news. <laughs> because we're t we've, although it may not be very comfortable, in fact it can be really rather awful, nonetheless, we are, one thing we're not in any doubt about is that there's something real going on, something truthful. We find Buddhism or, or whatever it might be, Southern Baptism or Rastafarianism, whatever it is, and we find, if we're lucky, some kind of um, positive response to that confusion. And there's an amazing sense of somehow having come home in some way, of having um, found a way of life in which that confusion is resolved. And this is very often considered to be you know, an act of faith, an act of belief. And that, of course, can be enormously important 
for us. But at the same time, like most things in this world, it's a double-edged sword. It also can begin become the beginnings of the formation of a kind of mental carapace or shell in which we just lock ourselves into another set of fixed ideas. They might be Buddhist fixed ideas, but fixed ideas are fixed ideas. In other words, rather than allowing us to, to grow and to evolve, it actually becomes something we then hold on to, something we might become proficient in, as in certain techniques of meditation, something we might become very knowledgeable about in terms of our understanding of some philosophy or theology or whatever. And that gives us a, another sense of, um, of feeling okay, feeling secure, feeling that we know what's what. And for a while that might work. For a while might be the rest of your life. But I think very often what we do is we substitute the truthfulness of confusion with a certain counterfeit um, security of belief. And historically when Chan or Zen appeared, it was very much, as it were, a reaction against the consolations and the securities of doctrinal belief. And it was saying, let's get back to the beginning, let's try and recreate the situation of the Buddha sitting beneath the tree. In other words, putting ourselves back into that pre-awakening tension. And this then becomes articulated in practices such as asking yourself, what is this? which is, of course, is what you introduced this morning. So, it's that ability to be sufficiently open and honest with oneself in which one acknowledges and affirms confusion, questioning, perplexity, bewilderment. That's the, 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 the driving force behind the possibility of waking up, the possibility of seeing the world in another way, the possibility of responding to the world not just from our conventional habits, but from somewhere deeper, somewhere truer, somewhere more honest within ourselves. So that's Dogen's sense of Buddha nature. I'm now going to just look at what Another um, Asian teacher, Tsongkhapa, who is, I've mentioned, the founder of the Geluk school in Tibetan Buddhism. What his school came to understand as Buddha nature was simply the emptiness of the person. The emptiness of the person. The fact that the person, in other words, is devoid of any kind of intrinsic nature or essence. That's Buddha nature. So the very... The, the, I mean, again, the very usage of the word nature here is in complete opposition to the idea that the reason we can wake up is because we are not fixed in any essential or substantial identity or nature. In other words, Buddha nature is not some kind of uh, hidden property tucked away inside us somewhere, but it's actually just a way of talking about the creative potential of the human organism. The problem is we tend to be fixated, 
and again we've said this many times already, fixated on a kind of static notion of I, or ego, or self. It's when we begin to see through that, and again that's one of the the whole um, points of vipassana or insight meditation is to observe our experience in fine and close detail to notice the breath in every moment the sensations that run through the body the feelings thoughts, emotions the more we plunge into and explore that experience the the less we find anything that corresponds to such a fixed and static notion of me. And it's a rather curious experience. And this is what the Buddha means by the selfless characteristic of experience. That once we go into just paying attention to the momentary phenomena that are happening in each instance, we realize there is simply just the, the, the pouring forth of process, be it physical, be it emotional, be it mental, be it whatever. And there's nothing in it that is intrinsically uh, reducible to me or mine. Conventionally, yes, this person is different from that person. But in terms of that deeper pain of attention, we somehow free ourselves from the need to be fixated around this ego with all of its desires and its attachments and its fears and its anxieties that are very limiting, that really somehow lock us into a stuck state. So the idea of, of, of experiencing the world in this way is actually an experience that in its very nature is beginning to free us up. In some of the Mahayana writings, Nagarjuna has this idea, Shantideva too, is that the very nature of, of phenomena themselves is nirvanic. That they talk about the natural nirvana. The, 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 the nirvana itself, in other words, that sort of freedom, is already somehow implicit in the very structure of experience. And we begin to see that. We begin to see that life is, is freely flowing. It's operating according to causal laws, of course, but there's something open and unimpeded about its flow. And I think very often we catch this best in poetry, for example. Uh, but very often when we find ourselves focused and still and aware and we go outside into the garden or into the woodlands, uh, there's this uh, wonderful sense sometimes uh, of just somehow being a participant in this natural unfolding, this rising and this passing away, or this passing away and this arising, uh, continuously and constantly. And there's something very liberating and something very freeing simply about somehow being in that space without this constant kind of urge to contract into, gosh, I must be enlightened or something now. And then you freeze up into that little, again, self-image that immediately sort of cuts off the immediacy and the vitality of the experience that was happening. 
Again, going back to Hui Neng, um, there's another statement of his, I think, although it doesn't explicitly refer to Buddha nature, nonetheless, I think, is useful in this regard. And that is his statement, um, when an ordinary person becomes awakened, we call them a Buddha. When a Buddha becomes deluded, we call them an ordinary person. Now this is a very useful idea because it somehow undermines the notion of a strict linearity. And it's true that just the metaphor of a path suggests a certain linearity. In other words, we start here and we end there. And that's very characteristic of Indian Buddhist thought. It, it's, it, it's, it's constructed, the, the path is constructed along a series of stages in which you start out as a completely confused person, um, full of misery and suffering and greed and hatred and delusion, and it's really bad. And then you sort of, you know, step by step, you move along the path. And at the end of the day, you end up as, a, as an arhant or a Buddha or something, in which all those problems are gone. Now, as a kind of didactic, didactic framework, that's probably helpful. But it doesn't actually capture the rather more ambiguous condition that human beings experience. Um, I don't think it's true to say that, every, that the unenlightened person is just a seething mass of attachments and fears and hatreds and delusions. Um, that seems to be a, in, a rather inadequate way of um, describing any person. Um, we're not like that, in fact, at any given any given time during even a day of our lives. There are moments in which we find ourselves responding to a situation with, uh, with great insight, with great warmth, with great compassion, with great love. In fact, that might be in many ways what's dominant in our lives. So to simply define the ordinary person as someone who is just you know, incessantly caught up in greed, hatred and delusion is, is an inadequate way of... Um, understanding the human condition. It's not saying that it isn't pointing to something that's actually um, worth paying attention to in the human condition. It might, in fact, be precisely what prevents us from living out our capacity to be you know, intelligent, wise, caring, loving people. And that's where the practice occurs, really, is working on that uh, dysfunction, one might say, or that uh, uh, particular um, uh, blockage that we're caught up in, but that blockage is not adequate to um, uh, uh, convey a sense of who, in fact, we are. We're far more comp complicated than that. And again, I think the images that I was rather critical of at the beginning can be seen to have some use, too. That there is within us often at rather surprising moments, unexpectedly, we find that we say things and we do things that are genuinely selfless and caring and loving. We're prepared to sacrifice ourselves for others. We're prepared to go out of our way. And that seems, in a way, to be truer to what we are than constantly calculating everything in terms of my own self-interest. 
The human being is far more complicated than these simple religious um, descriptions that we sometimes have in Buddhism. And yet we also know that in the next moment, after we've just done this wonderfully caring thing, we respond to a situation in an utterly kind of selfish way. Um, and that although we construct in retrospect these narratives of ourselves as basically being these rather together intelligent nice people going through day to day, we also, when we start paying attention, say, and again I think meditation and awareness practices are very good at showing us this, we also see that there's an awful lot of muddle, of rather pointless fantasy and daydreaming, all of which is incredibly egocentric. I mean, our, our fantasies in meditation are very revealing. They expose to us what inveterate egoists we are. Our fantasies are generally not about, you know, doing good in the world. <laughs> or may, maybe it's just me, but, uh, but they tend to, if you look at your fantasies, you usually find they're, they're, they're usually the, the, the reiteration in a kind of loop-tape fashion of some little fantasy or story about about me and how I can get what I want and then I get what I want again and again and again and again and I get a kind of a thrill out of that. Now again, there's probably perfectly good biological reasons why we do that. We, you know, we, are survived, we have survived to this point and these are mechanisms that have enabled us to thrive on this planet. But once we become, as the Buddha says, uh, content with our material situation and we begin to ask questions about how we can cultivate and create a life that's more rich and, and meaningful and, and valuable, then these kinds of habits of mind become extremely counterproductive. Uh, they, they're, they're no longer of any use. In fact, they become hindrances and obstacles. So what Huineng is pointing to is that... A Buddhahood or awakening or enlightenment or whatever word you choose to use there is not something that will only happen to you at the end of some long trajectory but is actually possible or at least aspects of it are possible in any given situation. Uh, and, and, and so Buddha nature, if we have to use that word, is in fact a way of recognizing that this capacity for insight, intelligence, compassion, whatever, is, um, uh, is constantly imminent. It can burst out, it can express itself, and yet in the next moment we retract. And those possibilities seem almost inaccessible to us. We must have had those experiences when somebody comes to us in a state of great grief or, 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 or some personal crisis and we want to help we want to be as caring as we can but there's something within us that blocks that it's like you were saying yesterday about you know we want to meditate but we don't we want to be loving but we can't we, we find ourselves repeating you know religious or spiritual platitudes or trotting out some bit of received psychotherapeutic wisdom but we're not, we know deep down we're not actually engaging with that person. There's, some, there's a kind of a wall between us. At other moments that wall isn't there. 
What makes it come and go like that seems very difficult to understand. It's not within our willpower to love or to be wise any more than it's sometimes in our willpower to sit on a cushion. There's something very curious going on. And that's why I find Hui Meng's um, uh, comment so useful because he points to the ambiguity of experience, which I think is much more realistic than thinking of us as either deluded or enlightened. We're both. It's not either or, it's both and. And again, the Zen tradition, Vajrayana tradition too, are very, very good about uh, pointing to the imminence of these qualities, that they're actually potential in each moment. We don't have to wait till we're you know, a Buddha before we can start doing some good in the world. And I think I'll stop there.